0: team for leading us in songs of praise, uh, particularly on the truth of uh, that Jesus is our redeemer. Uh, if you are a member of this church, you probably heard the sad news this week that uh, the Lord called home one of our uh, brothers, Brother Bill John. And I know that uh, for some of you, especially if you've been new to the church, you might never have had an opportunity to meet him. Uh, um, but I, just, uh, but Bill, Brother Bill and his wife Sharon have. Been part of this church uh, ever since I arrived here, and that's been about 20 years. And just uh, kind of reflecting upon his death, I just really want to share with you, just maybe, uh, maybe a pastoral word, especially for those that kind of knew Bill. And just kind of uh, want to speak a little bit to uh, to his passing and find hope and comfort. Uh, When I arrived some 20 years ago, I, I was committed to shepherd this flock and. You kind of just realize that, you know, these are the people that you hope to live life with, grow with, and then uh, to eventually it will die alongside with. And it's uh, as these years have been going on, uh, the brothers, you may come and pass the Bibles off if you wish. Uh, we'll, ask. Uh, we'll eventually turn to some texts. So eventually um, you knew that would be uh, some of us would be dying. And from that, uh, it's kind of sorrowful for us because I think... Though we've had deaths in this church before, I think Brother Bill's, at least in my recollection, is uh, among the first of that of that generation of people that uh, that that are beginning to die of just what we call old age. Of the, and and um, it's kind of a little bit of a sobering thing for some of us, just kind of realizing uh, that that first I call it first, at least to me, uh, that first generation of folks just are going to be with the Lord. The Lord's calling them on. And, and there's, a, there's a eventual passing, uh, changing of the guard. But uh, uh, though we feel, may feel sorrow, we should feel sorrow when we lose a loved one. Um, we certainly have every, every uh, reason to weep at the loss of a loved one. But we don't have how weep with weep as those who have no hope. In John chapter 11... And by the way, this is not my sermon. But This is just me. This is pre-sermon. John 11, uh, this passage where Lazarus has died, Martha and Mary are, are mourning. And Jesus shows up, but not in time to save Lazarus. But look, we look at, uh, we pick up verse uh, uh, 23. and Jesus comes to Martha and says to her, your brother will rise again. And then Martha said to him, "I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day and this, there's, a, there's this hope that believers have of, of life after death that death is a reality for all of us, like uh, tax and death uh, tax and taxes and death right uh, But the reality is for those of us have uh, hope in God we, we believe that there's a resurrection there's life after this there's something that goes on beyond just this temporal life. She has faith that her brother will rise again. But Jesus said to her in verse 25, and here's the verse that uh, just this, this great truth, one of the great I am statements of John. I am, Jesus said, the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And. <clears throat> what a wonderful truth in Jesus he tells us that he is the source of resurrection he is the source of life you want if you believe in life after death it is found in him in him alone if you believe in him if you trust in him you will live even if you die and everyone who's living here who believes in Christ in fact will never die because you already possess eternal life because of him that even as our bodies decay and our that we pass from this world our brother Bill, who had believed in Jesus Christ, even uh, uh, is in the presence of God, living with Jesus in heaven right now. Hopefully, the encouragement, hope we find is that we would say, Yes, we believe this too. Martha believed it. She said to him, verse 27 Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into this world that she believed in who Jesus is, that the hope of eternal life is found in faith in Christ, the Son of God, who he is, and what he's done. He is the one who has been promised to come into this world. He's the, the Messiah. He's the one who is the fulfillment of every single promise of God for salvation in the Bible. And he is that Messiah, and through faith in him, we have this hope of eternal life. And uh, as we, in the next probably 10 years or so, see more and more of our uh, dearly beloved saints in this church, faithful brothers and sisters who served in many of the different ways that you guys are currently serving this church, uh, we will, may we find hope in this truth that, uh, that is through faith and because of our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we will have, we have hope of resurrection life for all of us. We'll see our dearly beloved passed on once again someday. All right, that, With the hope of the coming one, that segues into our sermon a little bit. If you have your Bibles, please take them now. Turn with me to Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62. And this is where the official beginning of our sermon is. Isaiah chapter 62. As we've been... <clears throat> hmm. oh, <clears throat> before I get an intro, let's pray. Father in heaven... Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, your Son, the one who has promised to come. Thank you, Lord, for his coming first to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you for the hope of his coming again. And Lord, we thank you for this promise that we who live will never die because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord, that we find comfort, hope in this message, the truth. But Lord, we can have uh, hope and, of, of, uh, and for the future as well. You know, Father, we pray that uh, you would be glorified now as we look to this particular passage, a um, maybe not so well-known passage, uh, but yet a passage that, uh, as we understand it, would cause us to, to worship you, to give you praise, to give you thanks as we grow in our understanding of your salvation plan. In Jesus' name we pray, pray, amen. As we've been going through the second half of Isaiah, that is Isaiah chapters 40 through 66, we've been observing this repeated emphasis, basically, of God's promised salvation. A particularly, not God's promised salvation of Gentiles like you and me, but particularly God's promised salvation of a particular people group. A particular nation, nation of Israel. Time and time again, we see him promise to save Israel, to save Jerusalem, to save Zion, to save Judah. And I think for most of us, we understand this. We, we can be encouraged because God is, faith, you know, God is faithful. He's going to save Israel, and we see this is a wonderful thing about salvation that He's going to do. But when I preach through it now, uh, this is now 62, so 23 chapters into it, maybe after a while you're kind of wondering, yeah, okay, I got it. God's going to save Israel. You may be wondering, tempted in your mind to say, why is this important to me? You might be asking yourself, why is Israel's future salvation important for the church today? Why is the salvation in our, this passage, particularly the salvation of Jerusalem, a city in the nation of Israel, why is the salvation of Jerusalem in particular, and as well as Israel in general, helpful for Christians to understand? And today, even before I begin the walking through the text, I want to share with you three reasons. These three three thoughts that I have for why is Israel's future salvation important for the church today. And this is what always kind of just guide as we go through Isaiah. And we're kind of reading more and more about how God's going to consummate his plan of salvation of Israel uh, in the future. Well, let's take a look. First of all, this is what God does for us. Number one, it reveals God's character. It reveals God's character to us. It reveals to us who God is. In Israel's salvation, just like in our salvation, we see a lot of different aspects of God's character, right? Certainly, we see his mercy, his mercy to us sinful people. We see his faithfulness, his promise of salvation to them, and he's how he keeps it. We see his justice, justice to, to judge them and discipline them when they sin, but justice also that leads to their inevitable salvation because he's paid for their sins through his son. We also see his wisdom, and hopefully we see the wisdom of god 's plan how from how he planned israel 's salvation and he's, uh, and he time and time again, even though they go through periods of cycles of sin and and judgment and fall away, yet in the end we see that God brings to completion this plan we see god 's great infinite wisdom, we see his power, we see his uh, and his <laughs> and his compassion, we see all sorts of different elements of God's character. And what's cool is that as we're learning about Israel's salvation, we are learning about the God of Israel, the God of Israel in the Old Testament. But Sometimes as New Testament Christians, we kind of maybe have heard somewhere along the way, oh, there's a difference between the God of Israel in the Old Testament and the God of the church in the New Testament. But that's not true. When we learn about the God of Israel in the Old Testament, we are learning about the very same God of the church in the New Testament. So every time we learn about God's character in Isaiah, we're learning about our God that we worship today. And that, and that should cause us to worship him more and love him more. Number two, there's a second reason why Israel's future salvation is important for the church today is that it assures us of God's promises. I just uh, was encouraged this morning by our Sunday school class. We talked about the difference between Israel and church, and this is one of the major, and I repeated this myself uh, the different times too, this is one of the great assurances that God keeps his promises. Because if God who had who specifically promised salvation to descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that is the Jewish nation, if he's promised salvation to them, but yet he's broken it, or he's not kept it, or he, he's transferred it to somebody else, then we who is the Church of Jesus Christ, we've received promises from God. How do what kind of assurance do would we have that God's not going to transfer the promise to some other group? if we perhaps live in sin or disobey God like Israel has. Thirdly, though, and I want to spend a little, the most time uh, explaining in this one, is that Israel's future salvation is important for the church today because it magnifies the gospel for us. It magnifies the gospel. We, we are, when we think of the gospel, we tend to think of the gospel in terms of simply forgiveness of sins, through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is, no doubt, the, the essence of the gospel. The gospel is at the heart of the gospel, and every time I listen to the gospel, to share with me how you can become saved, I will expect you to say something about how Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died. If you don't say that, then you fall short of the gospel. There's this aspect of the gospel where we just talk about how Jesus died for our sins. That's why we have forgiveness of sins, that's why we have eternal life. And we tend to think of salvation in that way, and primarily so. That's OK. But the gospel is not just about our forgiveness of sins and eternal life in heaven. It's more than that. It's also about God setting aside a people for his own possession. A people who would submit to his authority as subjects of his kingdom for his glory. God is seeking a people to bring glory to his name. This kingdom, of course, is often called the kingdom of God. And uh, we may learn in other places, particularly in the New Testament, we learn this king is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the messianic king. A lot of times we think about this kingdom, and we, we may not think of it as being important, but the kingdom of God where Jesus is the Messiah and those who submit to him are part of that kingdom is an important, essential element of the gospel. In fact, it's the message that Jesus preached. When we think about the gospel of the kingdom, I want to just kind of elaborate just from the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, a little bit about this gospel and this relation with the kingdom. When Jesus went around proclaiming in the cities the gospel, the good news, it's twice in particular Matthew 4.23, Matthew, 4, 4, Matthew 9.35, it says that he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He didn't just say, I preach to them the gospel of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. He specifically talked about the gospel of the kingdom, that there is this aspect of the kingdom this, uh, where Christ reigns over a people for his, who, who submit to him for his glory. Once more, not only did he proclaim the gospel of this kingdom, but we see that Jesus taught us to pray for this kingdom. Matthew 6.10, when he taught his disciples to pray, what did he to ask them to pray? Us to teach, taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven, that we pray that God's kingdom would come, that it would come and be established in this world. And what's more, even Jesus, what did he teach his disciples or his followers to seek above everything else? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Matthew Matthew 6.33. Uh, what's more, when in that same sermon, the ser- uh, Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verse 3 to 12, the Beatitudes, we call them, or those are really descriptions of the characteristics of kingdom citizens. In Matthew 13, when he tells all the various parables of the kingdom, that's to describe the nature of the kingdom. But something kind of cool is that in Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus states that this gospel, of the kingdom, shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, And then the end will come. See, the kingdom was an essential part of Jesus' message. It's part of the gospel. Being saved is, is the heart of becoming kingdom citizens, but one day, everyone who bows the knee, everyone who submits to him, will be a part of this a kingdom of God, a kingdom that, yes, in, in this present age is, has a spiritual element where Jesus is our king and we are those as a church who submits to him, but there will be an earthly element, an earthly uh, aspect of this that is going, waiting completion that the Old Testament promises will come to pass. When we read kingdom, we tend to think just heaven, But that is not the whole picture. For the Israelites believed that there would be a future earthly kingdom where the messianic king would rule over them. A son of David, a seed of Abraham, who would reign from its capital in Jerusalem. One day, all its citizens... All the Israelites dwelling in that city will be those who have repented and believed in the saving work of the Messiah on the cross. And they will fulfill their calling, the promise of God that he had for them to be a people for his own possession to bring him glory. And so with this idea of understanding, hopefully we can kind of just, as we look at this message, as we look at some of the other sermons coming up, that we'll keep these in mind. Why is it important to understand that there's a future salvation for Israel? Why is that important? Because of some of these three aspects, all right? So with that in mind, uh, we're going to look today at three assurances that God will bring salvation to the city and people of Jerusalem. See, this passage encourages us that God's going to keep his promises, if you go to Jerusalem today, you'll find that it, it's a city that's divided. Divided, it's a, it's a, a city of, of some, uh, often torn by uh, competing religions, by war, uh, by threats of war, violence. But one day, this city will be made new. One day, it'll be a city that's no longer forsaken. One day, it'll be a city from where Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will reign from. And to a people who wrestled with God's silence, the Israelites in Isaiah's day, God gives them encouragement. And I hope as we study this text today, we grow in our understanding of God's character, grow in our assurance of God's promises, and we grow in our understanding of the gospel. All right, so let's take a look. What are these three, then, assurances that God will bring salvation to the city and people of Jerusalem? God's first assurance is the most straightforward. That is, in verse 1 to 5, we learn that God promises that he will fulfill it. God will fulfill it. That is, his promise of salvation to Israel, and particularly here, the city of Jerusalem. Here we find the promise of salvation for Jerusalem. Verses 1 to 3. Uh, look at the text with me. Here we read, uh, Isaiah, <clears throat> Isaiah records, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Let's stop right there. Uh, just like Isaiah 61, we ask ourselves, uh, or we encounter ourselves, an interpretive question which we ask Who is speaking here? Who is the I, the first person singular pronoun, referring to? Is it Isaiah? Is it God? Is it Messiah? The continuation, I, I believe this is a continuation of chapter 61. So and I, I take this that this is the Messiah. And this is the Messiah speaking. Uh, it's either Messiah or Lord. I don't think it's Isaiah particularly, uh, just because of what verse 6 later on, what God's doing, uh, this appointment of watchmen. So I believe it's particularly the Messiah. But if, what the Messiah does is really what God does. So you could see either when, but essentially the Messiah. And he is saying here, his, or his focus here is on Zion or on Jerusalem. If you remember, Zion and Jerusalem are two interchangeable terms. Zion is sort of, is a name for the mountain in Jerusalem where the temple would be, be situated upon. And that Mount Zion, or where the temple is, is it eventually became a name, almost a synonymous, often in poetic uh, literature, uh, for Jerusalem. They call Zion, Jerusalem, essentially the same. And so the Messiah's thoughts are on Zion, on Jerusalem. And the Messiah promises that he will not keep silent. He will not keep quiet for their sake. The implication is that he has been quiet, that he has been silent to them. Remember in, back in Isaiah 58, verse 3? We heard the Israelites asking God, Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? See the Israelites. Remember, they were they were fasting. Fasting was a form of prayer. So they were outwardly going through the motions of prayer. They were worshiping God, seeking God, but He was not answering their prayer. They were still. They had just been ravaged by the Assyrians. They had they were under constantly under the threat of the other enemy nations around them. And they were wondering, God, why don't you hear our prayers? Aren't we remember they were doing a hypocritical worship, so a fake worship and. And so the reason why we learned the prayers weren't answered or why it seemed that God was silent was because of their sin. Their sin. But despite Israel's sin, for the sake of Jerusalem, the Messiah here, his promises, says that he will not keep silent. He will not keep quiet forever. He will do something about their sin. No matter how they continue in sin, he says, I will not keep silent forever. I will eventually answer those prayers. He will save them. He will bring them righteousness and salvation. It's kind of neat here when you see those terms, righteousness and salvation here, and we've seen it, uh, they're they're paired together. They kind of go uh, found throughout Isaiah. But they're pictured here as lights, as lights that shine for others to see. You see, remember, when the Messiah comes, he comes as a light, and he will arise over them, and he will shine over them so that they will have light. But their righteousness and salvation, the light of salvation that they have, will be seen then by others. Who? Who are those others? The nations. The nations will see. They will see one day how God saves Jerusalem. God saves Israel. They'll be furthermore, they'll be given a new name. So this idea of a new name, which we're not told what it is right here, the Lord will designate it at some point. But this new name is a... Oftentimes in the Old Testament, when someone's given a new name, it means a change in character, a transformation that's taking place. We, looked, even last week, we talked about the, the transformation when the Messiah comes in Israel. It tells us that they will be so changed that everyone's going to notice because of the light of the Messiah shining on them. What's more, verse 3 says that they're going to be changed and they're going to become a, a crown of beauty, a royal diadem they're going to become so beautiful that they will be a, like a royal crown that is fit for a king right if jerusalem is going to be where the messiah reigns from then it goes without saying that his city will be like a beautiful crown it will be fitting of him not true in our world today we might have some great leaders, but you look at their cities or you look at their countries, you look at their states, you say, like, whoa, it's a mess, even though they're a nice guy or a nice gal. But when Jesus reigns on earth, wherever he is the Lord of will become beautiful. And Jerusalem being the capital will be the, like a crown jewel that will shine brightly and everyone will see it. And this will, but this will transformation that's going to happen to Israel is not going to take place because the people in Jerusalem finally get their act together. It's not going to be where they, all all oh, we, let's, oh let's, man, we're going to live righteously. And now God's going to save us. The fact is, Israel will continue in sin and rebellion against God until God himself does something to change their character. By his sovereign grace. And the change in Jerusalem's character is then going to be reflected in her symbolic name. Verses 4 to 5, we kind of see this name. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken. Nor to your land will it any longer be said, desolate. But you will be called, My delight is in her, and your land, married. For the Lord delights in you. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. We see here a sort of a uh, an emphasis on a little bit of kind of a um, on marriage. This, this picture of marriage. And marriage is so significant because it changes two single people into two married people. It changes two individuals into one flesh. And so there's a transformation that's going to take place when the Messiah comes, the head of, uh, the, or the king of Israel. And he's going to come back, and he's going to marry, in a sense, Israel. She's is going to be transformed. She's no longer going to be called forsaken, like someone who's uh, abandoned by her husband. No longer is the land going to be a desolate land, a land that no one takes care of. <laughs> but instead, Jerusalem's going to be called my delight is in her. Not a f- forsaken wife, a wife who's delighted in by the Lord. No longer the land will be desolate, but it'll be a, married, a land that's clearly married. That is, there'll be a... He'll have a close relationship with the Lord. This picture here, even uh, verse 5, about, uh, as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. The picture is how, if you remember Jerusalem, a lot of times when they would be under war, especially the, Assyrian capti- uh, the Assyrians attack and the Babylonians attack, a lot of times what happens is um, is that the people of Israel would be taken then into captivity, they would be forced to or they would be forced to flee when god says someday that your sons will marry you in the sense that they will marry the city that will never leave the city again not because they're not allowed to but they they're never they're never under the threat of war again there's never going to be any enemies that come in to to threaten or conquer them Notice also here this, of this transformation that's taking place that there's an emphasis on the, the land of Israel. Your land will be called married." A, and one of the reasons that I particularly believe that there is a future for ethnic Israel. You know, among evangelical Christians, there, there's, a, there's a, a disagreement about whether there's a future for ethnic Israel. Godly people do differ. But I am one of those who believe that there is a future. What this church believes, that there is a future for ethnic, national Israel. And it's because of this constant, repeated, promised land in all these Old Testament passages. You can't come across these lands. I mean, you can you think, okay, maybe the land is heaven, right? We can think of it figuratively. And certainly heaven is like a land. It's a place we can go to. But you can only take so many of these texts figuratively where it just starts thinking, this is just... you you can't keep interpreting everything in the old testament figuratively if there is a literal common sense that we can take to the word meaning then we should take that sense and a lot of these references to land can be understood as simply being that there is such a thing as a promised land to israel and god's going to bring them and cause them to live and dwell in this promised land forever that's going to be their possession You know, think about the distinction between Israel and the church. We're both considered the people of God. Both are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, a substitutionary atonement on the cross. But for the church, there is no physical promised land. There's no promised land to you and me. He never said to you and me, oh, I'm going to show you a land to which I will give to your descendants. There's no such thing for us. But there is one for Israel, for Abraham, for Isaac, for Jacob, and their descendants. And when Messiah comes, he will fulfill that promise. He will restore and reign over the promised land with Jerusalem as the capital. This we often have referred to as the millennial kingdom, according to Revelation 20. And when that time comes, God will rejoice over the salvation of Jerusalem and Israel. As an application just to this particular point, I, I thought about it, there, and that in our lives... There are times when you and I uh, wonder if God hears our prayers. It seems like he's silent, for instance. We've been praying something that is, as far as we know, is according to God's word. We've been examining our lives. We make sure that there's no sin. Maybe that's hindering our prayers. We've been asking for something time and time again. Maybe we've been praying for the salvation of someone. We know that God delights in the salvation of, of those who are sinners. But he seems to be silent or it's, The answer seems to be not yet. As faithful saints, we can remember that God will fulfill his promises. He will complete that which he's promised to do in us. Certainly he will speak to us in his word. He always speaks to us in his word but we can also just be sure that he will speak and give us an answer to our prayers in due time if it is according to his will. He will bring it to pass because he has promised to do so. He will not keep silent because he's a God who keeps his promises. He will fulfill every promise of blessing that he has for you in Christ Jesus. No, I know. I mean, we understand God's character. We we know that God is able to keep his promises. He's God who keeps his promises. But sometimes in our fleshliness, in our finiteness, we, we kind of start thinking, is maybe God's like us. Is it possible that sometimes, especially when you've been praying for like ten years for so or for something, and just, that God has an answer, you kinda wonder I me mean, has God forgotten? I know intellectually we know that God does not forget, but we wondered, can God forget? We know in our human experience, when people promise to us things, they forget. So perhaps is it true with God? Well, the second assurance, the second assurance of, um, addresses this concern, and that is that God will remember it. God will remember. God will remember to keep his promise of salvation to Jerusalem. And how does God remember it? We'll read in verse 6-7. On your walls I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. This is a pretty straightforward picture. It pictures the walls of Jerusalem and it pictures the Messiah appointing watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem. Now, for Isaiah in his day, they understood this picture very clearly. City watchmen are like security guards that you and I think of today. They kind of have a job of basically watching when nobody else is around, when everybody else is asleep. They're the ones who are watching for danger. And their response is if there is threat or danger to the city from the walls, they would look and they would warn the city. They would warn the king. They would warn the appropriate authorities so that those inside the city can do something about the impending danger to them and threat to them. God says He will appoint such watchmen, and and they too, just like Him, will never keep silent that 's their job They're, you know imagine a watchman that sees danger coming and then doesn 't say anything about it. God has a judgment for such watchmen they would be but then in the first part, last phrase of verse six, we see there 's an interesting twist to the role of watchmen they have a responsibility to Remind the Lord, you who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves. So it goes on without saying that these watchmen are to not rest; they're not supposed to sleep at their posts. They're to be alert. They're to uh, not keep silent when danger comes. But part of the responsibility these watchmen are they, they're to remind the Lord as well. And because uh, because of this, the reminding of the Lord, uh, it help it would preclude from thinking that. Maybe these watchmen are not literal watchmen on the walls. Maybe they're, because we don't, that was not the role of the uh, regular soldiers that would march around the walls of Jerusalem. They wouldn't remind the Lord of, of, uh, of what they're going to remind him of here. So maybe there's, uh, it's figurative for something else. You know, these, uh, but what do they do? Well they remind the Lord, essentially verse 7 tells us that they remind the Lord, they have no, they give the Lord no rest. They, so they keep reminding the Lord until God establishes and that is He sa- essentially saves Jerusalem. He makes Jerusalem a, a, a light that leads to praise throughout the earth. So what are these watchmen then that God uses, God appoints around Jerusalem basically to constantly watch? watch out or constantly to warn him or not to warn him but to remind the lord of his promise to keep his salvation promise to jerusalem two possibilities uh, some take this to be angelic beings perhaps god set some angels around the walls of jerusalem and they have a responsibility then to to remind god the other possibility which i believe it is is that these are the prophets that these are the prophets these are the old testament prophets like isaiah like jeremiah like Ezekiel, like all the other prophets that we had, the Old Testament prophets. If you remember the role of prophets, the prophets had a responsibility to basically act like watchmen. Jeremiah talks about Ezekiel as well. That their job as prophets was to, to look out for Israel. They were to look upon Israel whenever there was danger in the land, when there was sin, and God tells them or gives them a warning, what were they to do? They were to open their mouth and warn the nation of Israel. So they served in this role as watchmen. At the same time, though, the prophets also had a role of interceding for Israel. Isaiah did that a couple of times, where he would then pray for Israel, pray for his his people in, in repentance. But as they prayed to God, they would remind God of his promise to save the nation. So... The prophets then served in this way. They are the watchmen. They're the ones who all day, all night, never keep silent. They remind the Lord of His promises. They take no rest. They until the Lord God reestablishes His uh, kingdom in Jerusalem and saves all Israel. In the same and in very much a way, in a way, even to this day. The words of the prophets continue to do that as they're recorded in scriptures. When God sees his word recorded here, it is a reminder to him of his promise to save them. That's why God will remember it. Because he's written it in his word through the prophets. And what's more, just a final confirmation that these watchmen on the wall are the prophets. Is just the simple phrase that's used here of watchmen. That is, you who remind. You who remind. That same phrase, you who remind, has the same root Is used of an official title in the Israelite court. And that official title, an official, royal official, was known as the recorder. Recorder, you remember recorders? We oh, we even have recorders in our city, right? Go to the uh, city clerk recorder's office. Uh, they kind of record stuff for us. And in every kingdom, in every uh, government, there is someone who records the records. And the official uh, recorders of Israel would go around. They'd follow the king, and they'd write down the acts and decisions of the king, so that he would then be able to remember and follow through on the decisions that he has made. And this and the fact that these those uh, that word is used here is further indication that a recorder is in mind, that these prophets were those same ones who reminded the Lord and recorded it, who recorded the word of God. Uh, but kind of just a, you know, sort of an application for us, even for us Christians today, when we you when you and I when we prayed to God. Sometimes we're taught to pray the scriptures back to him because that gives us assurance that we're praying according to his will. When we do that, we're also, just like the prophets, reminding God of his will. When Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to pray God's will, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Now, it's not that God would ever forget. God doesn't forget. But in a sense, he wants us to remind him. But is it for him that we remind him? No, it's really for us. Because when we remind God of his promises, when we reflect on those promises, we're essentially, what we're doing is we're expressing our faith in God's promises. We're expressing our faith in who he is, that he is the one who is able to keep those promises. For God will remember his promises because he has sworn to keep them. He's sworn to keep his promises. Verse 8 and 9, look at this. Uh, the Lord has sworn by his right hand. And by his strong arm, I will never again give your grain as food for your enemies, nor will your foreigners drink your new wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it will eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. The Lord here is swearing by his right hand. He makes an oath. You know, God doesn't need to swear. God always tells the truth. So it's kind of really like he really means it when he says, I swear this to you. I promise to you. You know, we sometimes, even I say, I swear, Tony, I'm going to take you out to lunch later. You know, I'm not going to take him out to lunch later. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, maybe some other day. Yeah, maybe some other day. <laughs> I could swear, and it still doesn't really guarantee that I'm going to fulfill it. God simply has to say, I'm going to take you out to lunch later, and he will do it. God but he, God says, I swear. And I, this is, I, swear by, I swear by my right hand. By his strong arm, God like doubly just pours on the 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 s- sincerity of His promise, His power to save, His ability to accomplish what He promises. What is He speaking about? What is He swearing to do? Well, what He describes here is something that Israelites sadly knew all too well. They knew the ravages of war. They knew what it felt like to have a come have. Enemy nations come in and, and conquer them, take them away, take away their things, take away their food, take away their drink. In fact, as of the writing of this chapter, already King Sennacherib of Assyria had come by and defeated all the fortified cities of Judah. Actually, he'd already taken all this, everything in the northern kingdom Israel, took them all into captivity. He, he defeated everything in Judah. And you can imagine when the Syrian kingdom army went through and defeated all the fortified cities of Judah, they said, oh, look at the treasures. Don't take the treasure. Don't take the food. Don't take the drink. Don't take any slaves. Don't take all the treasures. No, they took everything. They needed, when you go to war, you got to make sure you have the right supply line. And so they're just saying, well, we're going to take this. This is our supplies. We need this. They, and so Israel, or Judah at this point, already knew this very well. In the periods of the judges, and you think of Gideon, there's a time where they would have to hide everything because constantly there would be cycles of, of enemies coming in, and just taking all their stuff, eating all their the produce of their land. But God says, "Never again, never again will this happen." By the way, uh, this this judgment of enemies coming in and conquering, uh, and or taking away all their food and drink was something that was actually part of the Mosaic Law. As far as the consequences for Israel's disobedience, we can read in Deuteronomy 28, 33, when a people who you do not know shall eat up the produce of your ground and all your labors, you will never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually. That's Israel and Jerusalem and Judah. But one day all that's going to stop. Never again will he give their grain. Never again will he give their drink to their enemies. Despite Israel's continued disobedience, he would save them. He will when his when the Messiah comes. He will protect them from the threat of the nations. He will destroy all enemy nations of Israel. And they would eat and drink in his sanctuary, in the rebuilt temple. We'll call it the Millennial Temple. You see, and as an application for us today, God will remember his promise to save Israel, and that's encouragement for all of us because God will remember to, his promise to save his people today as well. Sometimes we, in life, we, we might be tempted to think that we're gonna, we are gonna lose our salvation or that God somehow is, is going to hate us so much because of some sin that we committed, or some sexual sins that you committed. you think, oh, man, if anybody knew that, I'd be ashamed to show my head. Maybe it's been some adultery that you can, maybe it's, it's something that you've been caught guilty at work, you've been caught of, of stealing at work. Maybe it's something that you've been, you've been physically abusive, your wife or your children or uh, others. Perhaps it's so, some sin that's so d- disturbing that you think, man, if they, if they found out at church, man, they would just drive me out. And maybe because of that same thing, so you think, well, maybe, maybe God hates me too. God won't save me. But no matter your sin, if you have believed upon Jesus Christ truly, if you have genuinely believed, trust in Him, you can never lose your salvation. God will keep His promise to save you. God's promise is simple; it's clear in the scriptures. I love John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, whoever, it's you and me, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's not whoever believes in him might have eternal life someday if you keep walking with him in obedience and don't sin. Whoever believes and trusts in him will have eternal life. God will remember to keep his promise of salvation to Israel. And then by application, he's going to remember to keep his promise to you and me too. Well, in the final three verses, we observe one more assurance, and that is the assurance that this, that God will proclaim. God's going to proclaim throughout the earth this, the, the salvation of Israel and Jerusalem throughout the whole world. It's pretty amazing. Everyone's going to know it. Everyone's going to be, this is going to be such a, such a guarantee that everyone in the world is going to know that Jerusalem and Israel is saved. So let's look at verse 10 through 12, just kind of really quickly. Go through, go through the gates. Clear the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones. Lift up a standard over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Verse 10 begins with a series of really quick commands, all commands that just, uh, that kind of just go boom, 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 boom. And In fact, there's in some two uh, repeated commands that kind of just convey this sense of urgency, this almost even a sense of excitement. It's like when you have great news and you want to tell, oh, you got to quickly, turn on TV, turn on TV because something exciting is happening. You know, oh, I'm trying on TV. It says, clear the way, go through, go through. Build up, build up. So there's an urgency, excitement at what is happening in Jerusalem. The Messiah is coming. The citizens of Jerusalem are to go through the gates of the city. They're to clear the way for the people of Israel to return to Jerusalem. They're to build up the highway, the roads that lead to the city. They remove all the stones, all the obstacles. They're to lift up a standard that's kind of like a banner, basically like a, a, a if you will, our modern day, like a, like a billboard, you know, that announces that the Messiah has come, salvation is here. It announces to the nations that the Messiah has come. By the way, this idea of a standard is attributed to even the Messiah himself. The Messiah himself is a standard. Isaiah 11, verse 10, that in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. That is, they're going to seek out the son of David who sits on the throne of Jesse, the David, who will stand as a signal for the people. That's the word for banner here. And his resting place will be glorious. A standard. So... Messiah is going to be that sign. When he comes in Jerusalem to save Israel, he will himself will be a sign, and there will be a whether that that sign will be so bright that it will transform Jerusalem. That that sign somehow will be reach the ends of the earth, and from Jerusalem that news will go forth that the Messiah has returned. It's going to spread because God Himself will proclaim it. Look at verse eleven, right? For as the wrong chapter, behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. He's proclaimed. That the kingdom has come. That's what's going to be proclaimed. The kingdom has arrived. The kingdom is being consummated here. The plan of salvation is coming to an end. Israel is going to be saved, all Israel. It's going to reach a a message that's going to reach the end of the earth. And if this is what God will proclaim throughout the earth, then you can be sure that he will do it, right? He's not going to proclaim a message that he's not going to fulfill. He proclaims a message that he will bring to pass. And he's, notice here, what he's going to do is, is behold, uh, uh, say the daughters, lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He's going to bring a reward, the reward of salvation. He's going, to bring. he's going to bring a recompense, a sense of judgment, a payment for the, the sinful deeds of those who reject him. That's what he's going to do when he comes to Jerusalem. And though in this text, we, the return of Christ is focused upon the salvation of Israel, we know from the words of Jesus in the book of Revelation that he will bring reward and recompense for the rest of the world as well. Revelation twenty two twelve, 12. Jesus' words, behold. I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. When Jesus comes again, he will bring with him reward, and he will bring with him recompense. By the way, he's the personification of salvation for Israel. Lord, your salvation comes. He is the source of their salvation. So as a result of the proclamation of Israel's salvation throughout the earth, the nations are going to hear of it as well. They will see the transformation of Jerusalem. They're going to see that it's their change. And they're all going to recognize the, the transformation. And they're going to call Israel or Jerusalem holy. They're going to call Israel redeemed by the Lord. Everyone's going to recognize there's a significant transformation in Israel. You know, when you ask people to talk about Israel today in general around the world, they don't call them holy, nor do they call them redeemed of the Lord. In fact, a lot of people call them enemies. Well, some nations call them judged by the Lord, even. But Israel has a specific role to be God's instrument, to be a witness, a testimony. Their salvation has always been meant by God to be a light to the nations, to draw others to himself that they might see his glory, that they would come to believe in him as well. And here's an application, though, for you and me today. One day, Israel's salvation will be complete, and they will become that holy nation that God had promised them to become, if you can think about Exodus 19.6. But in this church age... God has not replaced Israel, but he's temporarily set aside Israel in his, in his plan of salvation that, whom, that he might redeem the church of Jesus Christ, you and me today. And our redemption in the, uh, by the Lord is, an, is to such an extent that the apostle Peter, when he talks to uh, describes the church, First Peter chapter two verse nine, he attributes to the church the very same titles, the roles that God had for Israel, First Peter two nine, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellence of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So in a very real way, our salvation enables us to be a holy people. Israel failed to be that holy people. They couldn't because they didn't have the Spirit of God in them. But you and I, brothers and sisters, who have been redeemed by the Lord, who have known his salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, we have received of the Spirit, his Holy Spirit, and he enables you and me to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession who are meant to be his instruments to declare his excellencies to the world so that the world might come to worship him. And so the real question for you and me, you and I, Israel, they have an excuse. They don't have the Holy Spirit yet. But brothers and sisters, as a church of Jesus Christ, we have no excuse if we're not being a holy people, if we're not being living out the 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 godliness that, is, that, we, that, that is, we are called to, we are enabled to live out? Are we being a holy nation? And particularly, if you, that applies to us as a church, but applies to us as individuals. Are we living out the holy life? Are we being a royal priesthood? Are we being people of God's own possession? We say that God possesses us so that we're proclaiming the excellences of him. Are we bringing glory to him? One day, and one day, God will, when we're done, God's going to return his focus to Israel. And he will complete and consummate his promise of salvation to them. Well, that's the three assurances. Simply as we conclude, if it, I go back to the whole application, particularly of if God seems silent in your life, okay? I guess. If God seems silent, you may, you, as you've been praying according to his will, sincerely, and you've been seeking, and, and you don't have an answer yet, may the salvation of Jerusalem encourage you to persevere in your trust in him, that you would keep walking with him, following him, knowing that one day he will complete his plan of salvation for them and for you, for all of us. And everything that is a part of his gospel promises will come to pass. Just as Jerusalem is not forsaken, neither are you who have believed in his son. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word this morning and pray that as we've looked into this the salvation, the promise, future salvation of Jerusalem and Israel, help us, Lord, to appreciate more of who you are, first and foremost, that you are a God of mercy, that you are a God of wisdom, that you are a God of compassion and justice, God of faithfulness, that we give you thanks for being that God. Lord, that we grow in our assurance of your, your promises to us, that you're faithful to keep your promises. Just as you keep your promise to them, Lord, we have confidence that you will keep your promise to us. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to also just simply grow in our appreciation of the gospel. That this salvation message that we proclaim even now is a message that go, is beyond just the church of Jesus Christ. It's beyond just us even. That in the, that in the future, your son will return and will establish his kingdom on earth, will bring salvation to Israel, and it will cause the message of your salvation to shine throughout the earth, and all the nations will flock to your son for the truth and light that he brings. Lord, until then, help us to be that truth and light, because, Lord, just as you shine your light upon us, help us shine our lights to the world. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to your promises. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. I'll see you next week.